and welcome to Alternate Galaxies, where we normally do hot takes of Star Wars. But mm-hmm. this evening, Rob, we're doing a cold, cold, cold take of something 25 years old. I'm Dave. <laughs> I'm Rob. And of course, we are doing Star Wars The Phantom Menace. Yes, we are. And we do more than just Star Wars on Alternate Galaxies for new listeners. We do all sorts of things, but Star Wars is pretty popular. No, absolutely. But when we do do Star Wars, we do do new stuff. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's where this has really come from. Because, Rob, as you know, when we do our hot takes, now we've done a couple of the movies. We've done, I think, all of the Disney Plus series, Mm -hmm. uh, each of those seasons. And we reference in that a lot the prequel movies yeah and at some point i thought let's actually go back and watch these things and see if they're as good bad or whatever as we think they are yeah and it had been a while for me when you sort of raised this i thought oh that sounds quite interesting because it's been a while since i've watched them i've seen them all many times unlike say the sequels where two of them i've only watched once each (laughs) yeah i've seen each of them a few times but it's been a long time since i did a proper, I'm going to sit down and really watch this, mm. and uh, and I thought, yeah, look, this is this is the time to do it. So we're we're in here with the Phantom Menace, and we'll be doing all three of the prequels, one a month for the next couple of months. Mm-hmm. Now, I'll say right at the start, listeners, uh, we're not going to be doing a non-spoiler section, a spoiler curtain, because <laughs> this is 25 years old. So if you haven't watched it yet, what's kept you? Yeah. Go out and watch it. Yeah, yeah. and or, 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 or you know, possibly you just don't care. So, so we're not going to do that. Uh, Rob, let's start with our memories from 1999. Mm-hmm. Tell me, do you remember seeing this? Do you remember watching it? What were your thoughts? Just tell me, tell me your story of the Phantom Menace. Well, this might be interesting to people out there who weren't around at the time or maybe not into Star Wars or maybe interesting to even yourself, Dave, because for this, I remember the novelization for the film came out well before the film. I think it was about a month and I had a choice to make. You know, this is new Star Wars. Star Wars is my jam. I've been obsessed with this since I was a little kid in 1980. I can read this book or I can go into the theater cold. And I chose to read it, Dave. My decision, uh, as far as I can remember, was along the lines of it's going to be cool to go in knowing all the ins and outs and not have to worry about putting it together on the fly. I'll be able to just sort of sit there and just absorb it and be a bit more relaxed than I would otherwise be. So before we even talk about the movie, I actually read this. Wow. Yeah. Believe it or not. I do remember that book being in the shops and and being quite pricey as well because it was a big glossy hardback. Yeah. Now, one thing I can't remember is whether I had to import it from America, like I bought it on Amazon US or something, but I certainly had it before the film and they it was out there. It was big. It was glossy. Many different covers. You had like an Obi-Wan cover and a Darth Maul cover. And I think there was a Padme cover. Pretty sure there was an Anakin cover. There was an Anakin cover because that's the one I've got. Is that right? I've got the Ewan McGregor cover. Okay, I'm going to pull this out when I when I finish recording and double check. But yeah, I'm pretty sure I've got the the Jake Lloyd cover. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, I read it before I went to see it, Dave. But in terms of the movie itself, I went to a midnight screening on opening day with an old uni mate. 
we'd finished uni probably, what's this, 99, so four years earlier, but we were still in touch. He was very much a Star Wars guy and he'd consumed all the same stuff as me at roughly the same time. He thought about Star Wars in the same way as me. We were very similar guys at uni, so there was no way we were both going to miss this, so we got together and we went to see it at midnight. Fantastic. Mm, How about yourself? I can remember being quite excited by this when it came out. I remember the first time... I saw that poster, which I still think is the best poster for any movie. The, the picture of young Anakin Skywalker and his shadow is Vader. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there were many posters for the movie, so I was going to get you to explain which one you meant. But yeah, that one with the, the outline of Vader on the um, the Tatooine building's wall. Yes. Yeah. And I also remember in the very early days of the internet, somebody sent me a link where you could download the first trailer for this. And it took about an hour for this trailer to download <laughs> and it was sketchy and pixelated and everything but but you could just sort of through all this 99 internet video quality it had that force theme music slowly building and just that you know every saga has a beginning and i'm yeah. just thinking wow this is a big deal yeah well i can tell you a funny story about that i was already working in magazines at the time and this was back in the days of computer magazines having cover discs and the guy who put together the cover disc for the magazine i'm sure it'd be on the statute of limitations so it was pc magazine right (laughs) (laughs) He, he took that trailer and copied it onto the cover disc in like a folder on the cover disc so if you've got a particular cover cd from 1999 go and have a look you may find the trailers in a in a secret folder Oh, wow. on the CD-ROM that came on the cover. Yeah. Yeah, that's very cool. Look, like you, I saw a midnight screening um, multiverse, which was a conglomeration of different fan clubs in Melbourne put together a screening. And, and just to show how long I've known these guys, Richard from Spacefall was there. Rob from 42 to Doomsday was there. Um, mm. And a bunch of other people. Um, I know I know Mark, um, not, the, not that Mark, the other Mark, listens to our podcast. He was there. He, he saw it four or five times in the first weekend wow. um, he was he, he just like went to a different showing with every group of friends he had like all weekend it was just insane <laughs> so I, I did see it at midnight at the cinema with a whole bunch of not necessarily star wars fans per se but but definitely sci-fi fans you know doctor who fans trek fans and certainly some star wars fans so that was that was quite a big and exciting deal i saw it again the next weekend a few of us said oh let's go see it in the daytime and see how it holds up when we're actually awake uh, which which was very cool so no it, it was a really big deal and um my memories are that it was terrible my memories are that it wasn't a good film I, I think a number of my friends sort of said apart from the final lightsaber duel it's rubbish and um that's kind of where it sat in my mind for a while i've, I've never had it quite down as the worst ever star wars movie because both the holiday special and the second Ewoks movie exist. (laughs) Um, But I've always had it right down there. And um, I probably haven't sat down and given it its due and really looked at it. So I'm, I'm, I'm quite excited to have this conversation. Mm. Well, my memories of the time were that the number one talking point about this film was Jar Jar Binks. Yes. It was Jar Jar first daylight second. Yes. Perhaps a distant third midi-chlorians 
And this is among fans, of course. You know, the the, re- the regular Joe isn't talking about midi-chlorians, but midi-chlorians got fans talking. Darth Maul having a double-bladed lightsaber was a big talking point because that was new. It was almost like, can you actually do that? Can can we can we do that with lightsabers? I guess we can. I, I was about to say, I, I reckon it wasn't quite the same for me as it was for you. Perhaps reflective of the fact that I wasn't really in Star Wars fandom. I was more in general fandom. Okay. Um, I, I agree Jar Jar was absolutely point number one. But I think my memory is that Darth Maul, in all these various facets, was definitely number two. And, and a strong number two. And then sort of everything else, a distant third. Mm. And finally, I also remember... The action figures were coming out way before the film and people were buying them en masse thinking they were going to appreciate like the old figures had. And what made this even worse, Dave, is they sold some real dogs of figures in the first run of figures before people knew who was who in the movie. And so people were snapping up armfuls of Rick Ole, <laughs> thinking, who, who is Rick Ole? Is he the next hand solo? Oh my God, I got to get 10 of these. <laughs> and of course, Rick Ole is like a nothing character. Yeah, I do remember that. But And also, the adjunct was when they released the Battle Droid figure, I think that was a bit rarer. And I do remember people sort of scouring shops trying to mm. find a Battle Droid. Oh, it was crazy. It was nuts. This was real midnight madness midnight opening for toys r us and you know places like that stuff we had only seen happen in america before and it was happening here and people were literally filling trolleys like just going up to the star wars i was gonna say exhibit that's the wrong word the star wars display yeah and almost just getting their arm and just sweeping everything off the display into a trolley and just not caring i just must have all of this because it's so exciting it's star wars it's new and all of these figures will be worth 50 bucks in you know a few months time no no you're absolutely right it, it, it was a really really big deal so look having just said i hated it when it came out and i've had a low regard i'm just going to give you my my sort of opening high level couple of sentences before we dive into our points so I'll, I'll get yours as well rob but sure I, I've, I've written down here watching it this time my views have definitely softened over time I think there's a really strong opening. I think there are some very good action beats. I think there's some stuff that's really cool. I, I think it's got a lot of problems. But mm-hmm. in there is a passable, fun action movie with problems. And so I, I'm, I'm definitely feeling softer to it this time than I was 25 years ago. Okay. I would say broadly this holds up. You watch it. It's an enjoyable film. Good night, everybody. I'm done. <laughs> no, no, more seriously, uh, on rewatch, it's very much a game of two halves, isn't it? There's some spectacular lightsaber fights. The soundtrack is gorgeous. There's some real drama going on in places, like when Shmee tells Anakin, just, just go, don't look back, both in terms of, I think, looking back at her... And also looking back in general, I think that's that's just a great line in the film. Yep. We're still in the era with lots of models and practical effects and real locations working with CGI versus the absolute orgy of CGI that the next film becomes, where it just looks like a bad video game. But here, visually, every frame looks great. It looks really polished. It's beautiful to look at. That's very much Lucas's thing, the visuals. So that's all good. But on the flip side of the coin, we've got, hey, kids... 
trades unionists are blocking Naboo. <laughs> Isn't that fascinating? And we have sort of near comedy accents for the Gungans and the Trade Federation. We've got plot elements that don't really scan. I just can't believe that the Naboo, who are this starfaring people, don't know what's under their lakes and rivers they don't know that there's whole gungan cities down there it's it's very strange i i know it's there to sort of show that oh look these two cultures have come together isn't that lovely but it just doesn't scan you know so there's bits of it that just drive me mental but there are bits of it that i really think are quite great yeah i I think that's very fair i i mentioned to a couple of people at work that uh, we were doing this this episode of the podcast and sadly a number of people at work are now very much younger than me (laughs) (laughs) join the clubs like me at work and um you know i I now work with people who were born after this came out and um and they talk about being kids and oh you know that their their parents would put on the phantom menace on dvd for them and and growing up really loving it and 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 i think it is absolutely true and it's worth just saying at the top we will never be 10 with them watching this and, and I can totally see if you were, you know, eight, nine, and this was put on, you would be very, very entertained. And, and I think that on that level, it does more or less work. And, and like you, there was stuff I was watching going, this is really good. This is actually really yeah. good. And the very next scene just going, what? What is going on? So um, it's, it's very, very mixed. I'm, I'm going to start with something that I think is worth saying, and that is Jake Lloyd who I think was probably the third or fourth topic of conversation, a, a distant thing to, to Binks and Moore, but definitely up there. I think Jake Lloyd is better than I remember. Uh, and again, when he's got actual, reasonable, natural dialogue, and he could just be a kid giving dialogue, he's, he's really good and he's really engaging. Mm. I, I think you're right. That scene where he has to say goodbye to his mum, that's a really good scene, and he's really good in that. But much like Hayden Christensen, I suspect we're going to find in the next movie, he's given some atrocious dialogue. Mm-hmm. Particularly the stuff where he meets Padme. That's just badly, badly written. Are you an angel? Yeah, that's so badly written. All the stuff mm. where he's got to narrate his own quest in the in, in, in the fighter at the end. Like, oh, what happens if I press this button? Oh, this will be fun. Now that's pod racing. Like, <laughs> you know, I, I define... A Shakespearean actor to give that monologue of oh oh I'm just going to talk to myself because I need to explain the plot to everybody. Yeah. I, I, I define a serious actor to do that. Let alone you're asking a, a what ten or eleven year old actor to do it. Um, yeah. When he hits his mark, he's really really good. Uh, and, and I didn't I didn't have a problem with him. I had a problem with some of his dialogue. I I think he looks like he could be you know someone who grew up to be Luke Skywalker's father. I get why he was cast. I, I thought it was fine i got a couple of things to say about Jake Lloyd and Anakin, just thinking about how you've couched it. I'll start with this one. I'd have preferred, Dave, if episode one started and Anakin was the age he is in episode two. He's been with Obi-Wan for years. We see them have some really fun adventure as great mates and we hammer home that these guys love each other. They're like brothers and we really bed that down so that when the change happens in episode three, it's way more of a gut punch. We're not wasting the first film on him as a kid. But yes, I get that Lucas wanted him to be a little boy and a slave and see him throw off his shackles, almost literally. And we get to see the backstory play out in the first of these films. But Honestly, I would have rather they put that in a comic or a novel 
or a TV series down the track and, ex- and explored it later. I would have much rather this started with basically adult Anakin. What about you? I agree. I think that starting your big franchise revival on the back of a child actor is is risky. It didn't really come off. As I say, I don't think he's terrible, but he's not a star either. The problem is, and, and this is another point that I was going to make, you can't do that because there's one big problem that Lucas has set up for himself in this, and that's Obi-Wan Kenobi. Because mm. he's decided that Obi-Wan is going to be the star of this prequel trilogy. The problem is that he then has to kind of mitigate Obi-Wan's massive, massive backstory problem. Because when we meet Obi-Wan in Star Wars, he's this sort of flawed guy who took a risk and he went on and he took he trained Anakin and he failed and because of that Darth Vader took etc 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 and you can't make your big Ewan McGregor hero that guy so they've had to invent Qui-Gon to kind of take mm. the fall for Obi-Wan and 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 almost push Obi-Wan out of this movie and I'll talk about that a bit later but but they've had to do Qui-Gon at the very start of Anakin and Qui-Gon's kind of the one that's to blame for Darth Vader eventually happening so that Obi-Wan can not be a failed hero. That's going to be an interesting conversation later because I think I've got some different thoughts on that. Okay. How about I go to my second Anakin point? Yeah. Which is he's meant to be nine years old here and Padme is meant to be 14 because the Naboo apparently have a culture where children can be elected to run the planet. <laughs> and that, that's just that. Yeah. Park that, however, let's just discuss that even as written, he's a kid, she's a young teenager. So the love affair that's being set up here feels very weird from the start. And although Jake Lloyd was actually the same age as his character when filming this, I think he plays a very young nine years old. To me... I mean, I don't spend a lot of time around children. I don't have children. I don't have relatives with children. <laughs> to me, he seems more like a seven-year-old. <laughs> he is what a seven-year-old is in my head, not nine. Meanwhile, Natalie was 16 when she filmed this. So not only is she already older than her character to begin with, but in makeup and acting very maturely as the queen, I think it's very easy for girls to have this older aura around them where they seem older than they are. I would have said she was 20. Well, well, indeed, you know, all the cues you look for in a guy being grown up, like a deep voice, bigger stature, all of that, that doesn't apply to females. So you look at these two and and I think, oh gosh, he's maybe seven or eight and they're setting him up with this chick who's 18, 20, you know, <laughs> it, it's weird. Yeah, absolutely. It, it doesn't work. It, it doesn't work because of that age difference. It doesn't work because... Lucas cannot write romantic dialogue to save himself. And <laughs> and it doesn't work because there's no chemistry. And of course there's no chemistry. Jake Lloyd is nine and he, he can't do that. He, he has no idea what chemistry is. And Natalie Portman's 16. She's not going to have natural chemistry with a kid, with a nine-year-old. Like, no. it's just not going to happen. No, it's weird. I'm going to highlight some of the action scenes here and say these are really, really cool. Um, Mm -hmm. I think the opening is incredibly strong. And that is one of the memories I do have of watching it for the first time 25 years ago, is that first five or six minutes where they arrive on the spaceship, something weird's going on, and then they pull the lightsabers out almost straight away. They're having a battle. There's the bit where Qui-Gon is 
cutting through the door and then they shut the force the blast doors and you know, the, the, the music swells up and he forces the the lightsaber into the door and it's melting and I, there's just this real sense of yes this is exciting and, and i think mm. that, that that start is really good the, the pod race is still a really good spectacle um i think i probably appreciate the pod race a little bit more now as an adult and i can sort of watch it as a piece of cinema rather than just as a, as a um, you know, 19, 20, 21 year old going, oh, come on, get on with the action. <laughs> it, it does go too long. And I think that Lucas is just a little bit too smug in his direction of it. But but it, it's it's really cool. There, there are some good action beats in there. Um, another big one I want to mention separately, but there was enough in this that I could appreciate it being enjoyable. Well, I made notes on pod racing. I still think it's one of the most impressive parts of the movie. I know what you mean about it going slightly too long, but that's by design. Because the first lap, I think, is there to show us what the course is. So we understand that they're, they're, you know, they're going to fly down a straight, they're going to fly through this canyon, then they're going to be in this other area, blah, blah, blah. It sort of sets the scene. Then in the second lap, we have Anakin getting into all sorts of trouble. That ratchets up the drama. And then in the third lap, he can pull ahead and win the day. So I think it's very much by design that it's that length. Sure. And, th- and there are reasons for it. I think it holds up, to be honest. It does look very video game-ish, which isn't helped at all because there was a game at the time called, I think, Star Wars Racer. Yeah, that sounds right. And you were literally racing along doing what you see in the film. It was was almost like you were watching the film. It was crazy. The sound design, though, is really good. And George Lucas's obsession with cars and car racing is present. I mean, George Lucas almost died in a car wreck when he was a kid, Dave. Mm. Yeah. there's this one bit where they pull along all the pod races and each one sounds like a really distinctive 60s or 70s American muscle car. Yes. And you can literally hear the muscle car engines and it's like, yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, Lucas clearly really loves that whole sequence and, 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 and does it very, very well. As I say, almost to the point of smugness. But it is it is a very good scene. Um, I will note, however, one moment that had us literally laughing in the cinema when we saw it is it's about the third driver to crash and he he plows into the roof of the cave and just before he does it it's this weird sort of alien sort of thing and he just throws his hands in there and just goes Mwah! and just plows, <laughs> plows into the cave roof and it's just and it's one of those you know moments i just remember laughing in the cinema going that's just absurd yeah did you did you go out of the cinema going to we each probably other? spent the next year at the pub just every so often going <laughs> and throwing our hands in the air yeah Earlier on, I mentioned trades unionists, Dave. I get that Lucas is going for a vibe of, you know, hey, look, look how such a mundane event can be twisted into a guy gaining power. You know, I totally get that's what he's doing. But the trade-off is that in a movie that is very much made for kids, which we've discussed at length already, he's jamming in this deep concept, which at a kid level just doesn't scan as well as if it was just something like, you know, war, these guys hate these other guys, they're at war so come join us in the star wars you know it's <laughs> instead it's like the movie's trying to be deep and give something to the adults to chew on in an intellectual way yet the film's dialogue the story in general the multiple poo and the fart jokes the whole vibe of it being aimed at kids in a major way and they kick it off with this you know hey trade unionists look what they're doing <laughs> they're blocking the shipyards of naboo you know so this is an important point. I, I didn't want this to be my opening point, but it is a key point that I've made. Mm-hmm. I went into the movie with a recollection that this whole plot makes no sense. And I thought, right, 
I'm going in this with an open mind. I'm going to sit here. I'm going to watch it properly. You know, no multi-screening, phone away. I'm going to watch this movie and I'm really going to focus on the plot and try and piece it together. And I can't. Right. I get that Palpatine is using the Trade Federation to create a crisis on Naboo through which he can destabilize the leadership of the uh, Republic and fill the power gap and, and seize power. I get that. I don't get anything else about what's going on. I, I don't get what's in it for the Trade Federation. I, I don't get what happens if they successfully invade Naboo. There's no sort of comment of, and now we'll have tariff-free access to your economy, or now we're going to mine your mineral wealth, or we're going to ship your people off a slate. Like, there's no sort of mm. sense of, you know, what they get out of it, um, other than they own Naboo, which doesn't seem like a particularly industrious sort of planet. And then you've got all this stuff about they need Amidala to sign a treaty to make the invasion legal. Now, never mind that the idea that you can just make an invasion legal if you, you know, sign a treaty like that. Oh, they pointed a gun to my head and I signed a treaty. It's now legal invade. Like, nonsense. But but mm. if Palpatine's trying to create a crisis, why does he want this crisis solved by it becoming a legal invasion? And we're going, oh, it's legal now. Let's all just go home. I, I don't get what it is. And I, 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 I mean, it's there because they need a reason to chase and Medalla across space back to Tatooine and keep her involved in the plot somehow. So, like, oh, why, why do they need the Queen? Oh, she's got to sign a treaty. But it all makes no sense. And, and mm. I don't know whether it's a case of Lucas just isn't a very good writer. I don't know whether it's a case of he's just like, oh, it doesn't matter as long as we get to the effects. No one will care. No one minds. You know, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. But if, if I'm wrong and, like, I've completely misunderstood this plot... Tell me, listeners, tell me. But the premise of it seems to be a nonsense. Yes, and it's underpinning a kid's movie. Yes. Like like I say, why is it just war? We're at war. It's the Star Wars, you know, and off we go. Yes, and, and, and The Simpsons did make great fun of um, that whole premise when they did their um, Cosmic Wars send-up. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> I've got lots of points here, Dave. Do you have points? I have lots of points. It's your turn, Rob. You kick us off. Okay, I mentioned midi-chlorians earlier. This this was hugely controversial at the time because people felt that it was explaining the Force. And for decades, the Force had been this mystical thing. And now, to them, Lucas appeared to be saying, oh, it's just tiny bugs in your blood. If you've got a lot of them, you're strong in the Force, you know. Which was kind of right, but not quite right. I mean, the Force actually remains this mythical power source in everyone. That doesn't change from the original trilogy in this movie, not one jot. What the midi-chlorians are is the way that we touch the Force and we can manipulate it. So the Force is in everyone and we don't understand it, but the more concentrated your midi-chlorians are, the more you can work with it. And I actually liked that. I liked it at the time. I still like it now. It's a pseudo-science sort of way of explaining it all without actually explaining what the Force is itself. Yeah, I disagree. I okay. I like the idea of Star Wars being a film about cool spaceships and space wizards. And and I yeah. think this does detract from that space wizard sort of concept. And I think there's, there's something about, you know, you can measure somebody's Jedi-ness via a, a you know, a number that, that, that just sort of spoils the mystique a bit. 
um, in and of itself, it's not a big deal. Look, I, I wasn't in a rage about it when, at the time. I'm I'm not in a rage about it now. I think it's a bad call, but but you know, whatever. What is unfortunate is that a lot of the conversations around it are really, really forced and really, really stagey. You've you've got the whole sort of even Master Yuda doesn't have a let count that high, or the you know, oh I don't know who his father was. One, one day I was just and you just go what, what is this? And, and look, it's a great fortunate thing. The actress who plays Shmi Skywalker, um, who is currently starring as the Queen of Sweden in a Swedish. TV show Young Royals. Well, she is Swedish. Yeah, she is. She is, and she, she's mm. back on Swedish TV at the moment. So that's okay. pretty cool. She's a really, really good actress, and she gives those conversations about the virgin birth a level of seriousness and gravitas that just about save them as credible. But but all of that, I think, is just kind of nonsense. And again, in in a story about cool pod races and lightsaber duels, this this whole like you know, I don't know how I got pregnant is a bit weird. Yeah, again, it's playing into this game of two halves thing I mentioned at the start. I mentioned some of the sort of the top level stuff like, you know, the lightsaber fights are great, the music's great. But when it comes to some of this bad stuff, these are examples of that. You know, you're slipping in trades unionists and and virgin births into a a film for kids. And it's like, is this really for kids? But it's not for adults. I, I really struggle with where it's meant to land. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about the Jedi, though, because oh yes, there's a lot of cool Jedi stuff here. A friend of mine who went to see this movie with us both at midnight and then the next day was quite hungover when he came to see it with us sort of the second time. And he said, look, guys, I actually am feeling pretty ordinary. I'm going to sleep. Wake me when Darth Maul starts lightsaber fighting. <laughs> and he was he just he was willing to pay for a ticket just to see that 20 minute sequence again. And, and sure. I think there are a lot of people that were in that category let me say i i have mostly pros on this i i think that the jedi are very cool they're very exciting there's lots of great little fights there's lots of great little moments there's lots of nice little jedi tricks you know little stuff like qui-gon playing with the dice you know or, or sorry the chance cube um you know is, is all very good yes the fights are really impressive there's clearly a lot more money and a lot more ability for special effects than there was back in 1983 and certainly better than 1977. And they use it really, really well. And it's exciting. They've got, a, you know, somebody who's a proper athlete, like a proper martial arts guru to play Maul. And that's really, really cool. So th- those are really, really great sequences. I do think it's a problem. They've kind of reinvented the Jedi as these all-powerful things. And, and, and again, when... Um, Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon are fighting a bunch of droids every time they're just unbeatable like they they mm. can slice through armies of droids a force push just wipes out half a dozen droids at a pinch you know all of that sort of stuff they, so I think they're, they're a little bit too powerful they're exciting but a bit too powerful and as much as I think that the big Darth Maul fight scene is epically filmed and really exciting it will never to me pack the emotional punch of Luke fighting Vader for the first time, Luke fighting Vader for the last time, Obi-Wan fighting Vader for the first time in 20 years. Like, they, those are all fights about something. This is a very cool film to fight, but it's just a fight. Yeah, or Sabine getting stabbed in Ahsoka and living. Yeah, yeah <laughs> great stuff. No, I kid. Um, Dave, a lot of the Jedi stuff you mentioned there are Jedi out in the field. What about Jedi sitting up in their ivory towers? I'd like to say that for our Doctor Who listeners, which would 
hopefully be most of you out there, the Jedi who are sitting up in Jedi Tower are like the Time Lords in 70s Doctor Who. There's this stuffy sort of attitude. There's tradition. They're doing things because they think they should, not because it makes sense. I mean, to not want to train Anakin when they know, we've just mentioned this, they know he has the highest midi-chlorian count ever and has the potential at heart to be one of their big legends. That's insane. Even from the point of view that you would try to train someone like that so they don't go off the rails and use that huge power for evil or whatever. I mean, that would be the most obvious thing to me. Well, we better train this guy. Otherwise, he could do anything. That would be terrible. You know, so they've got this really stuffy Time Lordy kind of vibe going on. Again, back at the council. Out in the field, it's all lightsabers and chopping people up and stuff. That's great. But in the tower, Dave, what about those Jedi? They do seem really foolish. And it's something I suspect we're going to come back to in the next couple of movies because it really plays up there. When I saw this in 1999, I, of course, was a huge fan of Babylon 5. Mm. And particularly, I loved Walter Koenig and Asbester and the Cycle. And that conception is brilliant. And this, this idea that if you have even the tiniest bit of telepathic abilities, the cycle will grab you because you are better in the fold than out there with that power uncontrolled. There you go. And this yep. is exactly the point you were making there, Rob. This idea that, well, if they find a Jedi too late in life, they can't train him. So what? There's a whole bunch of people who are out on remote worlds. You know, like, no, no nobody growing up on Tatooine, I suspect, has ever been discovered in childhood as a Jedi. So do, do these people... Is the universe full of non-Jedi Force sensitives? I I don't know. And, and then this conception of the Jedi as the Catholic Church <laughs> is an interesting one, but it is absolutely setting them up to fail. You know, this idea that to be a Jedi, you you can have no emotional attachments, you... you can't love presumably they never have sex like mm. gee what do you know i was gonna say what does that do to our to an institution and well we've got the catholic church we know yeah so it it's odd and i think we're going to come back to that more okay we were talking about darth maul earlier i want to talk about him a little more just to say that i think killing him is such a big mistake in this film i think he should have remained the henchman for all three films and the guy that Obi-Wan is gunning for across three films because he killed his master in the first film. I'd like them to have had successive duels in the next two films. And I think this mistake is highlighted with the way that Maul is brought back in a variety of media and some of it is absolutely regarded as canon, like you think of the Star Wars Rebels episode called Twin Sons where Darth Maul and Obi-Wan, and it's the Obi-Wan we sort of know from A New Hope, it's the Alec Guinness Obi-Wan, they face off for the last time. And that's canon. So I think even the people making this stuff realised, oh, he was a good character and there was potential there, so let's just push forward and use that potential, even though in this film he's clearly cut in half. Yeah, and, and my understanding, I don't know if this is just legend or true, was that they did the first test screenings and the audience have walked out going, that Darth Maul guy, he's cool. I can't wait for him to be back. And they're like, no, no, he's dead. He's not coming back. And they redid the graphics. So that's why he actually literally falls into two pieces as he falls down. Right. Um, because they were very determined that, no, 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 this this guy is not part of the next movie. He is not coming back. But yes, they they absolutely had a, um, 
a real fan favorite on their hands there. And yes, I think that you're absolutely right. Yeah, because he's more... I mean, who do they get in the next film? They they have Christopher Lee. I mean, Christopher Lee is a very cool guy. But all his fight scenes were done with, like, a stunt double, you know, with Christopher Lee's face sort of stuck on CG style. I think it would have been far more interesting to have Maul across all three of the films. But, yeah, I digress. Qui-Gon, Dave. You mentioned Qui-Gon earlier, and I said I might have a contrary thought. That contrary thought is... People do wonder what if he had trained Anakin, what if he had lived, what if he hadn't been skewered by Darth Maul. Indeed, what if he had survived the kind of lightsaber wound that people now survive in Disney Star Wars every week. I think he would have done a better job at training Anakin and Anakin wouldn't have fallen. No, I think that that is very, very legitimate. I think that's a really interesting take. I think that's really, really possible. My point is more that we can't have the blame put mm. solely on Obi-Wan because we're making Obi-Wan the hero of movies two and three. Therefore, the decision to train Anakin against the advice of the council has to be Qui-Gon's so that Obi-Wan is not at fault. And Obi-Wan's only doing it because it's the dying wish yes. of Qui-Gon and he's honouring that. Yes. Um, now, that brings me to a question for you, Rob. Mm. Who is the hero of this film? Qui-Gon. You see, you say that, but Qui-Gon <laughs> dies. So there's, that doesn't matter. Well, okay, so look, let me, let me put it to you this way. Okay. I struggle to see a character in this movie who holds the hero narrative. I, I think that Qui-Gon does a great job at holding the movie together, and I really like what Liam Neeson's doing. Don't get me wrong. But he's not the hero in the movie because he's not the one that, in inverted commas, gets the girl and rides off into the sunset as the hero at the end of the film. Obi-Wan, I was surprised at how little he's in this film. He really is just a minor character. And I think if you were coming to this movie completely fresh without knowing about episode four, you would not appreciate that Obi-Wan's actually that big a deal. He's like the the sidekick that that Mm. comes into his own later. Um, Anakin's only a kid and kind of comes in and out of the plot and he's not there at the start. Amidala isn't actually Amidala for like the first half of the two-thirds of the movie. So, and, and then she sort of disappears from the action at, at, at a few points. Who is the hero of this movie? Who, who's, who's our audience rooting for person that we get behind and cheer for at the end of the movie? Yeah, well, when you put it like that, or when you say, you know, does he get the girl and ride off into the sunset? Of course he doesn't. So, yeah, he's he is not the hero in that sense. Absolutely. I always have just gone with it, though, because the camera barely leaves the guy through the film and he drives the narrative and such but are people rooting for him that's a really interesting question because i'm not sure what i was thinking at the time i think i was excited that ewan mcgregor was in the film even though he's a minor character and i think rob you and i have the advantage that we grew up watching star wars empire strikes back and return of the jedi and we also knew that this was episode one of a prequel trilogy yeah and 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 i think Because of that, George Lucas essentially can cheat because he can just sort of have Obi-Wan as a big character knowing that he's going to get bigger. He can have Qui-Gon here and who cares if he dies because it's not the trilogy. You know what I'm saying? Like this, this, this feels like the first third of a book. Yeah. And yeah. and that's fine if you know what the next two thirds are. You know that there's another two thirds coming. As a standalone movie, I think that's part of why The Phantom Menace doesn't quite work because it is, I think The Phantom Menace only exists to set up movies two and three, which are there to set up movies four, five, six. Mm. And, and it doesn't quite stand alone in its own right. 
which, which ties back into my idea that it would have been a great comic book or novel or something just to tie into starting off an episode one with grown-up Anakin having adventures straight away. Uh, absolutely. Now, Rob, yes. let's 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 talk about something we've ignored up until this point. You said was the number one talking point coming out of the movie 25 years ago. I agreed with you. Jar Jar Binks. He's a Jar Jar Binks. Uh, yes. <laughs> it's... It's interesting to watch it now. I'm maybe I'm just used to more digital characters. Of course, Jar Jar was the first big digital character we saw on screens. You know, kids. Again, people, if you're like 20 years old listening to this, you just have no concept of this because you just weren't born then. We didn't have these things. Now they're in every single film. And so watching him in here, I was not hugely put off by him it was only when he went into some of the super slapstick stuff and the super childish stuff like stepping in poo and yeah oh piusa you know and, and all of this the stuff that's just there for the five-year-olds i'm like eh, yeah don't need that but generally i was okay with the character is that heresy to say no i was going to say something very very similar for the most part I didn't have a problem with him. I didn't love him, no. but I didn't have a problem with him. But there are, as you say, these real moments where he just dials it up to 11 and, and, and I was sort of just, oh, God's sake, you know. And so I can see what it's there. The fact that I have not invested heavily emotionally in this being the first new piece of Star Wars in my lifetime means that I actually don't care that much. Right, right. As I did back then. Is he a bit over the top? Yes. Um, you know, he, he's sort of reaching too stupid to function levels. Yes. Which, which is a problem for any character. And, and I think it's just an example of Lucas doesn't care about form and style and substance. He just cares about, is it funny and does it look cool? Yeah. And and, and that comes across. So look, I, I, I still see the problem with him. Maybe as well just Rob, because, you know, we're 25 years older. We're, <laughs> we're not sort of, you know, as angry and as passionate. Yeah. And look, I do think some, some of it is that we're just used to characters like this now. You know, I, I think it's just very natural for us to see CGI characters zipping around screen doing crazy things. It's just not that different. Whereas back then it was very different. And when those crazy things were stupid things, people reacted. They're like, who is this? What is he doing? Ah, you know, it was just so new. No, I, I absolutely agree. Rob, I'm going to say a piece of possible heresy. Okay. Did the two droids need to be in this? No. No, no, not at all. I think it would be a better film without them. Yeah, obviously they're just there so Lucas can shoehorn them into every film and say, look, they're in all the films. But having Anakin build a protocol droid for, for his mother, I mean, it, it just doesn't scan. I'm sure there are more basic droids that he could have built because that would be a fairly expensive droid to build in the Star Wars universe, I'd, I'd imagine. And I know Anakin works in a junkyard where he can probably pick up a piece from here and a piece from there sort of thing. But it still doesn't strike me as the kind of droid you would build your mother. No, it, it's a classic example of the problem I highlighted earlier where this really only exists to get us to future movies. Yeah. And so therefore we have to have C-3PO and an origin story. And, and that just doesn't really quite tie in. Yeah, and, and R2-D2 is just one of many R2 droids. And I think an R5 droid they had as well. And, of course, they all get blown away except for R2-D2. And then you have that scene with Natalie Portman doing that weird voice that she does. What is his designation? <laughs> I, I in, in those scenes, I generally don't know which one's Natalie Portman. <laughs> is that right? And which one's the, the double? 
Yeah. Um, like, like there's some where um, it's very clearly um, The Handmaiden is being played by Natalie Portman. And you go, okay, that, that is very clearly Natalie Portman. But there are other scenes where I'm looking at the Queen going, I don't know which one that is. Mm. And um, I don't think that's a particularly great thing. Although, although the twist is kind of cool and useful and, and all the rest of that. And I think it's kind of implied that Qui-Gon knew from the start. I, I genuinely don't know which one's Natalie Portman at some point. Yeah, I think the way he keeps making these barbed comments about the Queen is because he knows he's talking to the Queen, but he can get away with it. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yes, I yeah. think that's true. So, Rob, before we get to the sports desk, I've just got a couple of little points I want to run through quickly. Yeah. I want to agree with you that the geography of Naboo makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> they... they have to go through the planet core to get from where they landed to the Naboo city, but they could do it in a lake and it's all just a bit, bit weird. Having Brian Blessed is cool. Although he's playing a bizarre character, it's Brian Blessed. I don't care. Loved him then, love him now. Mm-hmm. Some of the effects have dated. The water effects are the ones where I really saw this and just went, ooh, that, that does look like 1990 CGI. Yep, yep. I still don't know if we're meant to watch this and not know that Ian McDermott is playing the same character and they're not two different characters. And I was kind of helping this because my nieces watched this for the first time last year and they didn't get that Darth Sidious and Palpatine were the same character. Mm. So I thought that was interesting. And again, maybe we're coming into that. And I can't go to the sports desk without mentioning the actor who plays the Naboo pilot who... Is absolutely terrible. That's and Rick Ole. Yes, yes. And um, <laughs> he is absolutely terrible. And we were making fun of him then, and I'm making fun of him now. And and every time we were just sitting around and talking about how bad was some of the Phantom Menace, someone would go, that little droid did it. And we, we would just fall about laughing because that delivery is so, so bad. Well, th- there's, there's a thing with Rick Ole. A lot of fandom... At the time, I don't know if it still happens now. In fact, I haven't seen it for a long time, so probably people have just forgotten about it. At the time, he was called Captain Obvious <laughs> because he was the captain of the ship, but everything he said was obvious. Yes. <laughs> like, they'd pull up to the plane and be like, well, there's Naboo. And like, every one of his lines was just saying what we could see on the screen. So, he was Captain Obvious. That little droid did it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fair enough. Rob, we're going to do a sports desk, so let's go. Let's go. Rob, we're here at our sports desk where we pick our play of the week, our foul of the week, and our player of the week. Why don't you kick us off, Rob, with your play of the week? Alrighty, Dave. My play of the week. Some might say it's the pod race in this film, but I'm going to say it's the lightsaber duel and specifically the Duel of Fates music that goes with it. This just took Star Wars to another level. People need to understand we've never seen lightsaber fights like this. This ties into an earlier conversation we've had tonight, Dave. George Lucas wanted to show what Jedi in their prime were like because he thought that in the original trilogy... Vader is a broken down old man in a life support suit. Luke is a kid who's barely been trained. So when you see them sort of hack and slash at one another, which people found quite exciting. You you watch Return of the Jedi and they're hacking and slashing and it's all very exciting. Great. But Lucas, and I think it's fair to say, didn't regard that as what classically trained Jedi would be like. You know, he wanted to wow people. And I remember when that early trailer came out, the one that our 
man back in publishing stuck on the cover CD. When that came out, some of the duel was in that. I, I seem to remember Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon doing the, the, the forward somersault and both landing either side of Darth Maul, who sort of looks around and is like, ooh, which one do I attack first? You know, all of that was in it, and we were dumbfounded. It's still great now. The choreography and the location in particular, that power plant, whatever's going on there, just make this amazing to look at. So that that's my play, for sure, the lightsaber duel. No, no, very fair. And and yes, that Jewel of Fates music is is wonderful. I, I totally agree. My play is that opening five minutes. I do think that is an incredibly strong opening. It gripped me 25 years ago. It still gripped me this time. Just the build-up of seeing, okay, the Jedi are on board. Something's tense. We've got Ewan McGregor. We've got Liam Neeson. And then the lightsabers come out. And then they're fighting droids. And then they're breaking through doors. And then they're breaking through... And just the build-up. And I was thinking, wow... This is going to be an exciting adventure, and it's a really strong opening. Do you know something else I notice in that opening bit? When they shoot the ship in the hangar and blow it up, the explosion there, the sound design on that is tremendous. I remember at the time in the cinema, it went like, boom! And I was like, oh, wow. And even at home with my soundbar, which isn't the greatest in the world, but it's pretty good, it sounded incredible, actually. Yes. No, no. Absolutely. Absolutely. I will keep us going with my foul of the week. Yep. And my foul is any time they said, we need the Queen to sign the treaty to make this invasion legal. And I just went, (laughs) what are you talking about? Yeah. And they do it again and again and again. And whether it's just a stupid concept, whether it's the stupid um, Trade Federation accents they say it in, whether it's the fact that we're talking about like treaty signing pieces of paper in the middle of an action film with pod races all of these are just terrible it's just it's just a bizarre choice yeah yeah those accents are problematic too i mean george gets away with it he goes on interviews and says well there's there's no like japan in space so how can they be japanese you know or with jar jar there's no caribbean in space how can he be caribbean i'm not doing caribbean you know and it's like oh that's a cop-out george yes no no the the fact that the Asian accents are evil people wanting to do lots of evil trade and the dumb comedy character has got a Jamaican accent yeah. and the and the dirty grifting character has got a Jewish accent. No, George. Yeah. Completely yeah, coincidental, yeah, yeah, George. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Eeks. Uh, my foul, Dave. There's a few things to toss up here. Is it is it toning down Jar Jar? Is it casting a better Anakin? That one's really annoying because when you watch the the making of on the DVDs, you see a different kid who they were looking at and I think must have got pretty close, uh, particularly for them to be showing his face and such in the in the footage. And you sit there thinking, George, George, that's that's Anakin. That's the kid there. He looks like an Anakin would look, but he looks slightly older. And I think he would have played better against Natalie. Is it killing off Darth Maul? I mean, that does piss me off. I mentioned that earlier, but no. I think the true foul in this film is not making the film a touch more adult. By which I mean, you're still going to make the film for kids to enjoy, but you just don't go as far into the dumb kiddie stuff. As I said earlier, it's it's far more kid-friendly than any other of the original trilogy films, especially Jedi, which was the, the poster child for being a, a kiddie film with the Ewoks. Yeah. This is beyond that. I, I just wouldn't have gone so far. I would have dialed it back a bit. And I think it might have helped the film a lot, actually. Yep, I think that's a very fair criticism. Mm-hmm. 
Keep us going, Rob. Your player of the week. Dave, my player is Liam Neeson. Snap. (laughs) I mean, again, it ties back into a conversation we've had, so I won't labour over it. I think he turns in a really great performance, whether we agree or not on whether he's the lead. I watch him in modern interviews talk about Star Wars now, and he kind of downplays it as, as if it was all a bit of nonsense and, oh, I had no idea what it was about, you know, and all that. But I watch Qui-Gon in this, and I believe in him 100%. I don't even see that that's Liam Neeson playing a role. I see that as 100% Qui-Gon Jinn. I, I think he nails the character. I think he's great. I I couldn't give it to anyone else in this film, frankly. No, it's interesting because I can remember a lot of commentary after this came out about Liam Neeson phoning it in. Um, that was a real criticism of his performance that, that was levelled at him. But when I watched it this time, I think he is the performer that holds this all together. Now, I'm, I'm not a massive Liam Neeson fan. I, I think he's fantastic in Michael Collins. I think that's a great performance. But I, but I sort of struggle to remember sort of other things he's been in. But but he is, he is really, really good here. And what I noticed here is that when Jar Jar's going over the top and being annoying, there's Liam Neeson just pulling it all back in. When you've got some really weird dialogue going on with Shmi Skywalker, there's Liam Neeson just pulling that back and giving a really serious performance. When when things are being a bit silly or a bit weird, Liam Neeson's just there, he's strong, he's got presence, and he's the one that holds it all together. I don't think he's the hero of the movie, because I don't think there is a hero in this movie. And, and I think that he is set up to be a flawed character because he is the one that gives the galaxy Darth Vader. Mm. So I don't think he is the hero, but Liam Neeson is probably the hero of this. He's the one that holds this all together. And I think it's very, very telling that both of us have, I think, without really any qualifications, given him player of the week. Yeah, he certainly does set up Anakin on the path to becoming Darth Vader. But again, there is that interesting conversation that we that we didn't really have. Could he have saved Anakin from becoming Vader? If, if he had trained Anakin for longer, you know, to be mindful of the living force, this kind of interpretation of the force that he had, that he was at odds with, with the Jedi Council, because he was a different kind of thinker. Some people even refer to him as a bit of a grey Jedi in in Star Wars fandom. Yeah, I can see that. Could he have moulded Anakin a bit better so that Anakin wasn't as fearful of, of losing people and particularly losing Padme and that's that's why he becomes Darth Vader, etc., etc.? Could he have trained him out of that? That's a really good thought, but it is leading into the future of Anakin, which means mm. it's probably coming in for next month. Before we go there, though, Rob, your score for The Phantom Menace in a freezing cold take. In the freezing cold light of day, which sounds so funny to say in a blazing hot Sydney summer, uh, seven out of ten for me, Dave. Yeah, I gave it a C plus. Mm-hmm. I, I I didn't hate this as much as I expected. It's got some good moments, but there's a lot of problems with this movie. Yeah. There are a lot of problems with this movie. But it was fun, and I'm glad I've gone back and watched it. You keen to come back next month and do Attack of the Clones, Rob? I am, and I'm not, Dave. <laughs> Maybe we'll get into the reasons why next month. Interesting. Look, I've really enjoyed having this conversation. Listeners, I hope you've also really enjoyed listening to us. As always, please do write in. Let us know your thoughts. Tweet us, message us. We love to hear that. And we love to just have these conversations and see what you think. But until then, I've been Dave. I've been Rob. And we'll be talking Attack of the Clones in a month. We will. Goodbye. Bye. 
You've been listening to Alternate Galaxies, the podcast where Rob and Dave from the Doctor Who show take a look at other great sci-fi and fantasy that we think Doctor Who fans might like. You can reach us at hello at the dwshow.net, on Twitter at the dwshow, or on Facebook forward slash the dwshow. Alternate Galaxies is an irregular podcast, so stay tuned to the Doctor Who show and other programs on our feed to know when the next episode's coming. Our theme music is called Wretched Destroyer and is by Kevin McLeod. Find him at incompetech.com. Well, that's it for this episode. We hope you enjoyed the show and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.